My lesson this morning will come from the book of Numbers, the fourth book in the Old Testament, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 25 to 33. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites from each of their ancestral tribes. You shall send a man, everyone a leader among them. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land and they came to Moses and to Aaron and all the congregation of the Israelites in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all of the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and here is its fruit. Yet the people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites and the land of Negeb. The Hittites, the Jesubites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome them. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against this people, for they are larger and stronger than we are. So they brought to the Israelites an unfavorable report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land that we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great size. There we saw the Nephilim. The Anakites came from the Nephilim. And to ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. God bless us always. The reading from the Holy Bible. Let us pray. Loving God, we know that we never have to invoke your presence with us because you are always among us and within us. Allow our hearts to be opened and hear your word in these moments. Amen. Recently, I was reading a survey about things people fear the most in life, and leading the list was public speaking. It said that 42% of all people fear public speaking more than anything else. Well, there are lots of other fears there. There's fear of heights. There's fear of flying. There's fear of water. There's fear of rejection. There's fear of growing old. There's fear of dying. We have lots of fears at different times in our life. And your personal fears, you know, the thing you fear the most might not be among those that I just listed that came out of this survey. But whatever your fears are, they're born of a sense of inadequacy. We all have a sense of senses of inadequacy. I wish we just had one. We all have feelings of inadequacy. And when we are in situations that make us feel insecure, our fears surface. And cause us to wonder, am I enough to face or conquer what's before me? Well, we not only have personal fears, we have 
collective fears. We have fears that permeate all of us when the, when the future seems uncertain and unsafe. And there is something we know for sure about fear. Fear can paralyze us. It can cause us to not do anything. But we also another, know another truth about fear, and that is if we stop and face it, we can often disarm it. And after we disarm it, we can move forward with confidence. Currently, we are living in a collective fear, a pervasive fear that threatens to engulf us. It's born of a global pandemic. And this morning, what I would like to look at is how do we face that fear that is pervasive in in our world? How do we face it and move forward faithfully? I think that's a salient question for us in this time. Today's reading comes from the book of Numbers, as as you just heard. And the Israelite people are feeling inadequate. They don't know that they're up to the task before them. They are at the foot of entry into the promised land of Canaan. And they don't know whether they're up to that task. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. And the first three books set the stage for Numbers. If we just started out with numbers, it'd kind of be like watching the fourth season of a TV series. We'd have to get a quick look back at the first three seasons to see what's going on. The Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible are particularly sacred to Jews because it's the story of their origin, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. As the Gospels are particularly sacred to Christians. Torah is especially sacred to Jews. So let's briefly look back at Genesis. In Genesis, God tells Abram, who becomes Abraham, God tells Abram, I'm going to give you a land, and you and your offspring are going to occupy this land for all of eternity. In Exodus... After years of slavery, God orchestrates the saving of the Israelite people from slavery using Moses as his deliverer. And he delivers the people to Mount Sinai. And in Mount Sinai, God gives the people the Ten Commandments. The book of Leviticus is filled with all sorts of purity laws for the people to live by as they journey with God. So we come to the fourth book of the Pentateuch. We come to the fourth book, which is Numbers. And in Numbers, we find God journeying, beginning the journey with the people from Mount Sinai, where they end up at the end of Leviticus, to Canaan. We're told that that trip would have taken about two weeks from Mount Sinai to entry into Canaan. It would have taken about two weeks, but it ended up taking... 40 years. How come? Why did a trip of such short duration go from two weeks to 40 years? Well, in our lesson today, we read why, actually. God instructs Moses to send spies into Canaan to do some advance work, to scout it out before the people enter. 
It says, send a leader from each of the 12 tribes of your ancestry, from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the spies go in. They scope it out for 40 days, we read, and they come back with good news and bad news. The good news is the land is fruitful. They bring back, they bring back fruit from the land and they say, this is indeed the land of milk and honey, just as the Lord told us. Here's the product of the land. That's the good news. The bad news is the land is fortified. The cities are fortified. The men are giants. They are huge. There's nothing we can do in their face. Well, Caleb, one of the spies, brings a minority report, didn't he, in our reading today. Caleb says, we can handle this. We can do this. We can go in and take care of this. But the other spies say, no. No, we can't. What are you talking about? Everyone we saw in that land are of great stature. We are no match for them. So the people don't go in. They end up with these words, the clincher. We seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. That's what the other spies said. We're grasshoppers. They're giants. It'd be no contest. We're not taking the chance. Well, God, chapter 13 ends with, we seemed like grasshoppers to them. Chapter 14 begins with these words. Then all of the congregation raised a loud cry. And all of the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we have died in the land of Egypt? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword to giants? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they got said to one another, let us choose a new captain and go back to Egypt. The people are afraid. Mutiny against Moses and Aaron. Let's choose a new leader and let's go back to Egypt. At least we had three cots. Three square meals in a cot there. God offers God's judgment in chapter 14 on the people's lack of trust. God says, no one in this generation except Caleb and Joshua will enter the land of promise. The rest of you will wander for 40 years until everyone in this generation has died. And then the new generation will inherit the promise. That's pretty profound, isn't it? The people could have responded differently, couldn't they? Faced with the giants in the land of Canaan, couldn't they have responded differently? Couldn't they have said, you know what? Our power has never been our own. Our power has always come from God. The same God who orchestrated our escape from slavery in Egypt the same God who has provided for us through our journey, who has given us manna and who's given us bread and given us water and given us quail, 
That same God is the source of our power. And we can go in. We can go into Canaan. Just like Caleb said, we can go into Caleb and occupy the land that God has promised us. That could have been the people's response, but it wasn't. The people's response was, we can't do this. And so God consigned them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until that generation perished. Well, today, our fear of the pandemic is pervasive. And this fear of the pandemic is paralyzing many of us because it is unlike anything we have ever faced. We have had events in our collective history, to be sure, that have caused fear among the people. But nothing as invisible and highly contagious as this virus. Before I was born, one of the sources of collective fear, before I was born, the Great Depression. The Great Depression started in October of 1929 with the crash of the stock market, and we really didn't come out of it until we mobilized for World War II in 1940 and 41. So throughout the period of the 1930s, this country had attendant suffering and economic uncertainty for a decade. And I was not alive. I was born in 1949. But when I was a boy, I heard lots of people talk to me about the Great Depression and living through that time and how uncertain the future was and how fearful the country was. And maybe the most memorable words ever spoken in that time was when Franklin, President Franklin Roosevelt and his first inauguration in 1933, uttered those words that have been remembered ever since when he said, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. And historians tell us that those words gave optimism and confidence to a people who heretofore had been fearful. The Great Depression created fear. More recent events in our lives have created fear for us. Ones that you would remember. 9-11. Hurricane 9-11 on September 11, 2001. Hurricane Katrina, August 29, 2005. Those are two events that occur to me that created fear among much of our land and a lot of physical devastation. 9-11, tremendous physical devastation in Washington, D.C. after the attack on the Pentagon, in New York City after the attack on the World Trade Center. Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and the Mississippi Gulf Coast as they were leveled. But those two events, 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina, did not simply result in physical devastation they resulted in emotional scarring. We all know where we were when those planes flew into the World Trade Center in New York City. We all know where we were then. 
We watched that second plane fly into the World Trade Center, and we knew we were under attack. The first one might have been an accident, but not the second one. Then we heard about the, 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 the attack on the Pentagon, and then we heard of a plane that was grounded and crashed in a, in a field in Pennsylvania that was apparently headed for the United States Capitol building, and we knew we were under attack. We didn't know where the next attack was coming. We were filled with fear. Flights in the United States were grounded for days. The stock market crashed. Hurricane Katrina. We sat and watched. I know firsthand the effect of Hurricane Katrina. My sister Evelyn has lived in Gulfport, Mississippi since 1964. She's lived there 57 years. She's been through many hurricanes most notably Hurricane Camille in 1969 with its destruction, but nothing like Katrina in 2005, nothing like that. She lost her home. She lost her hometown. She watched the, the Mississippi Gulf Coast from Biloxi to New Orleans be leveled, and she came to live with me in Bloomington, Indiana because she had no home. She came to live with me in Bloomington, Indiana for a short time while FEMA was putting up housing. And my sister, a strong woman, a lifelong extrovert, was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. She sat in my front room, this lifelong extrovert, and stared out the window, unable to engage in social discourse. She was in the midst of PSTD, and so was much of that part of our nation. You see, fear can do that to us. Whether it's 9-11, whether it's Katrina, whether it's the Great Depression, or whether it's this pandemic, fear can paralyze us. It can cause us to lose confidence in the future. There's no question but what COVID-19 is creating anxiety and taking a psychological toll on all of us. Our new reality, that reality of sheltering in place, our fear of infection, our fear of infection of loved ones, our inability to visit loved ones in long-term care, our loss of employment, all of those are creating tremendous anxiety in all of us. One study by the Kaiser Foundation found that half the people in the United States have tremendous anxiety because they don't know when normalcy is going to return, when there will be a change in what we are facing. So it seems to me that a couple of things we need to do is ask ourselves, what can we do to make this period of time of staying in place endurable, not only endurable, but rewarding? For me, I can't speak for you, but for me, one of the things I can do 
is to take control of my life again. See, I've surrendered. I've relinquished control of my days in large measure, and that's my fault. I wake up in the morning. I'm almost 71 years old. I'm retired, so I wake up in the morning. I think, well, what am I going to do today? Same thing I did yesterday. Nothing, because I can't go anywhere. So I've surrendered control of my days. I need to take that control back. I need to know that this is the day that God has given me and I need to live it fully. We all need to acquire or practice some disciplines that during this restricted time that will allow this time to become rewarding to us. We can begin writing letters. Imagine that. We could write letters to people who mean much to us. We could telephone people with whom we've lost contact. You know, I read my letters my mother and father wrote in the 1940s, and I've learned a lot about their lives. Today, we just send stuff electronically, and it evaporates. We could write letters. We could make telephone calls. We could exercise. We could read the Bible. We could pray. We could watch movies that we've always wanted to watch on Amazon Prime or on Netflix or online. There are ways that we can enrich our life during this time. But I think most importantly, we can focus on the small moments that really comprise our lives. We can become more present in the moment and more appreciative for life itself. Plagues are not new. This pandemic is not new. Plagues have been around throughout human history. Albert Camus the French philosopher and author wrote a book in 1947. Albert Camus was the second youngest man ever to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. And he wrote a book in 1947 entitled The Plague. And the novel is set in coastal Algeria, a coastal city in Algeria. And it sounds eerily like today. An infectious epidemic suddenly occurs in this town. Despite, despite the death and the disease, people don't take the disease, the plague, seriously. Public officials quickly pronounce that there's really nothing to worry about in this novel. Doctors find their Warnings disregarded. Hospitals are filling up. Funerals are done quickly because there are too many to do. Corpses are stored in cold places. People are quarantined. Sounds eerily like today in America. Public officials say no problem. Doctors say there's a problem, but they're not listened to. Morgues are filling up. Hospitals are at capacity. 
Sounds kind of like today. Camus stresses the powerlessness of the individual because he's an existentialist, an existential philosopher. He, he stresses the powerlessness of the individual. He says all of this proves to us how absurd it is for us to believe that our lives are secure and protected because all that it takes is for something invisible to show up and our lives are no longer protected or secure. Here's what I think. I think Camus has posed the question for our age. In the face of uncertainty and in the face of our vulnerability, when everything that we once thought to be so secure is maybe not, we need to decide where do we put our trust? I can't agree with existential philosophy. I don't believe that we are powerless in the face of an epidemic or anything else. We don't have to surrender to powerlessness. Instead, we can follow faith and science. We can remember that God is with us every step of the way as we navigate this crisis and the next one that comes in our lives. And we can accept science, knowledge about the world based on empirical fact, which is an intellectual gift given to us by God to arm us for the dangers we face in life. So trusting God who has always been faithful to us and trusting science that gives us facts about the natural world, we can move forward. In Numbers, the book of Numbers, the people would not enter the land because they were afraid, and so they were sentenced to perish. God said, no one in this generation will receive the promise, except Caleb and Joshua. We don't have to repeat that history from Numbers. We can place our trust where it belongs, and we can emerge on the other side of this pandemic a stronger people. Thanks be to God. Amen.